0: This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. You ready? Yep. All right, guys. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast on The Makery Network. I'm Jeff Fader. And before we get into it with James Fleming, Wasteland Forge. Got to a little bit of business. Axe Wax. Axe Wax is an all-natural food-safe wax for your axe, for your wood, for your handles, for your steel. I actually used it on my hammers so when i finish my hammers to to forge with i like to give it a little bit of axe wax and it feels great what i do is i put a axe wax on and then i hit it with the heat gun let it really soak in wipe it down and then it's a great finish for your hammers it's a great finish for your steel carbon steel damascus and it's all natural food safe so you know you're not putting anything icky into your stuff. You know what I'm saying? And if you go to Axwax.us, put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off your order. Or if you're in the UK, go to UK knife supply, UKKnifeSupplies.com. Toby will take care of Knife Talk 10. If you're in Australia, go to NordicEdge.com.au. Those guys are nice enough to take care of Full Blast 10, thanks to Sausage Man Forge. Saucy, I'm with you. And if you're in the EU, go to knifematerial.at. Thank you, Keith, for accepting Full Blast 10. Get yourself that Axe Wax. Get 10% off and, you know, it's cheap enough, but it's even cheaper with the Full Blast 10. Might as well get a couple pucks, okay? The next thing, guys. I get I'm worried about you all. I'm worried about you all because I feel like you're working very hard and you're, some of you are spending too much time doing things you're not supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be creative. You're supposed to be making stuff. You're supposed to be documenting your stuff. You're supposed to be doing business, but doing business can also mean saving time by having a good website. If you go to akinteractive.com slash you fill out the paperwork, Andreas Kalani is going to figure out what you need to get yourself optimized and optimizes in like, don't do the business in the DMs. You're going to be able to answer all the questions that people would ask on your website. And then you can have a buy it now. You can have a link to your commerce. You can have your website linked to your Instagram page. You can do anything and, and Andreas can do it and he'll save you time and energy. So go get yourself a new website, or get logo redesign, or if you already have a website, he can square it up for you because he's a knife maker and he's a maker and he you know he speaks your language. So if you want to have a good maker pot, a good maker website, Andres your guy. AKinteractive.com dot slash full blast, and all the links are in the bo- in the show notes of the show wherever you're listening to this, wherever you're listening to the full blast podcast. All the links are in the show notes in direct with hyperlinks. Last thing I want to tell you is I've been recently getting a lot of messages from people about how to get into blacksmithing, how to get into bladesmithing. I want to make knives. I want to forge this. I want to forge that. And they say to me, where do I get an anvil? Or where do I get hammers? Where do I get tongs? Well, when it comes to getting hammers, I go to John Ariani Sunset Forge NJ. That's Sunset forge NJ on Instagram, sunsetforgenj.com. He is my friend. He's been on the podcast a number of times. He's a good buddy of mine. I've actually learned how to make hammers from him. He makes beautiful hammers, cross peens, straight peens, rounding hammers, different sizes, different shapes, sledge hammers, 45-degree you know, cross peens, those doghead hammers. He's making it all, and he's going to get you into the hammer that you need. And I know what you're saying. Did John buy a spot on the Full Blast podcast? Of course not. Of course not. He did me a solid. He sent me, he did me a real solid. He sent me a drift that I'm going to be using. And I really appreciated getting out fast because I'm on a tight deadline. I'm on a tight deadline. That's why John Ariani's my guy. John Ariani's the man. Sunset Forge and Get yourself. A, you know who has a couple of his hammer, a number of his hammers is, is uh, Neil Camamora. And word on the street is Neil doesn't let anyone touch his John Ariani hammers because he understands the the special nature of these hammers. I've heard it. I know this for a fact. He makes hammers for all sorts of people. John's the man. And if you go to his website, I'm sure he's got something there right now. I think he got a two two and a half pound rounding hammer ready to go. And if you follow him on Instagram, he's always posting stuff. So go follow John Ariani. that's Sunset Forge NJ on Instagram. Get yourself a real hammer. Stop it with the nonsense. Stop fooling around with the Home Depot hammers. It's the nonsense. Go get yourself a good hammer, John Ariani, Sunset Forge NJ. Okay. My guest is James Fleming. That's Wasteland Forge. Wastelandforge.com, Wasteland underscore Forge on Instagram. He's an army combat veteran and he's a knife maker, out of Iowa, formerly of Texas. John James, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Like I, we were talking before the show started, and we—I've we, known you for a while through Instagram and stuff like that. But you're a very fascinating guy, and I'm wondering how things are going in Iowa. Oh,
1: Iowa's cold and snowy right now. We're today is actually warm. I think it's like thirty-eight degrees, so it's it's a nice day to be getting work done. Uh, but yeah, normally it's it's really cold around this time. Uh, but I have a well insulated shop, uh, which helps a ton.
0: I bet, I bet. What is it like? Growing up in Texas, you didn't have kind of weather like this in Iowa. I mean, I know you guys. I saw one of your videos where you were snow blowing. Your driveway, and I was just like, oh, "God," because we. I'm in New York. We're dealing with similar weather. It's just relentless and awful. And I'm um, right now. It's like 20 degrees, something like that. 25 degrees. It's miserable. And I'm wondering how a a Texas native deals with the harsh winters of Iowa.
1: Um. Well, I mean, i I think I've been up here for about six years now. So I mean, you climatize. But I, uh, before that, you know, I was. Uh, when I was in the Army, I was in very inclement places. Uh, I was in South Korea in the mountains for a year. And then uh, I, I spent quite a bit of time at Fort Knox, Kentucky, about about a year and a half at Fort Knox, Kentucky, which gets pretty cold too. Uh, so, like, I'm pretty used to it at this point. Like, Texas, yes, it, it does. I lived in North Texas too. And that's, a, that's the thing about Texas that a lot of people don't know is that north texas is so vast that you do get so many different climates um and north texas gets snow every year it just they don't do anything about it but close down all everything
0: you know it's funny because i talk to ben Snurr quite often and, and um when something's going on in texas i said ah, you, you should just you should head down to see you know andrew alexander or blacksmith tools i hear he has like a power hammer for sale or something like that and and, and ben's always just like do you understand how big texas is do you understand <laughs> that like for me to go see him it's a long drive you don't, you think everything's so close in texas but then you realize how vast it is
1: yeah, I think Ben Snur and Andrew Alexander are about six to eight hours apart.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's just like, stop telling me where to go because I'm I it's too big Texas is too big. It's too big for me to say that. Yeah. So growing up in te- in, in northern Texas now, are you, where 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 in northern Texas were you? Born? An hour above Dallas. Hour above Dallas. What was that like growing up?
1: Uh well, let's go back a little further. So, yeah, my dad was in the the military, so I'm I'm like from all over the place. I've I was born in Georgia in Fort Benning, uh, and then we moved to Alabama, and then he got out of the army in Alabama when my sister was born, and then we all moved to California, and uh, we lived in California until I was I think I was six, and they my parents had separated. They were still living in the same house. My dad had a girlfriend that was always coming over, and um, my mom emptied his bank account, put us all on a bus, and we went to her hometown in Louisiana to live with my grandma for a little while. So I grew up in Louisiana up until about 13, a lot of hard times. Wait a
0: second. I'm sorry for interrupting. Your mom drained your father's bank account, or the girlfriend did? My mom did. Is that a bad story, or
1: uh yes, so I don't talk to my mom, and I don't talk to my dad for that matter um uh both for different reasons my my mom was not a great parent um
0: I'm sorry to hear that
1: oh I mean it, it you know there there are people who grow up in life blaming their parents for everything and how they turned out, and then there are people who learn from how bad their parents are and and try to be better because of it. And I think I'm the latter. You know, I, I try to be a better person because of the, the upbringing I've had. Um, in Louisiana, it was it was a hard living. Luckily, I had a lot of family around. You know, we, we didn't have anything but family. So uh, it, it was, there were a lot of helpful things up until right before we moved to Texas. So we were living with my grandmother. Uh, she kicked us out. And for about three months, we were homeless
0: uh how old 13, are you 13 oh my
1: god yeah so and then that's that's what prompted my dad had moved from california to texas uh which was about five hours from where i lived in louisiana and he came and picked up me and my sister because we were the youngest and we couldn't get jobs or anything like that um so and I so I moved from a place in Louisiana that was next to a military base Fort Benning or uh, not Fort Benning uh Fort Polk uh so Leesville Louisiana which is super diverse if you're if you've ever grown up around a military installation the the, the schools like the the town everything's super diverse because you have a bunch of people from everywhere around yeah. the world coming to this one place and you know living in a small location, so you 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 get all these cultures mixed in to all the public schools and stuff like that, and I moved from there to um a small town in North Texas called Howe, Texas, which I think my graduating class was about a hundred
0: huh.
1: um and it was all white so i I moved from like this diverse town. And Louisiana to this very white southern town in Texas where there was just a bunch of like, you know, racism because nobody had been around any other culture through their entire life. Yeah. So, yeah, that's. And then so that was like kind of the growing up in Texas. And if you look at me, you don't look like I don't look like somebody who grew up in a small town in Texas. Like I'm not country i don't have an accent from the south or anything like that uh there was a larger town pretty close that had a skate park and i ended up hanging out with a bunch of people that you know kind of lived in that town versus the small town that i lived in uh and and there was you know more like being a punk rock kid skateboarding and stuff like that i didn't fit in in the town i was living in but i did fit in and like surrounding areas that were kind of bigger.
0: There's something to be said about finding a family, you know, mm-hmm. finding people that you can relate to, you know, and and there is something very nurturing about finding a group of people who who can who can kind of fill the void that, that you're that you're not getting at home. One thing you said a while ago that I really appreciated, I want to tell you that is, you know, you said something which was very very hard to say, but at the same time, it was very, very true Is a lot of people blame their upbringing for their behavior as opposed to, you know, you know, repeat, uh, you, there's repeating the, the, the mistakes that were made or addressing them and realizing you're just going to do the I'm going to do the opposite. And there is something very brave and valuable about making, be, being able to make that change, changing a a system of bad mistakes and realizing it and just kind of, I just want you to know that I, because I'm in the same situation where my my parents were really, I mean, I, I love my parents, but at the same time, there was a lot of things done that were, that could have been avoided. And I find myself, especially with my father, is, is addressing some of the things that he did and making sure that I don't do them with my kid.
1: Yeah, it's it's really important. And your kid is much older than my kids. And and like, it seems like you have a really good relationship and friendship with your kid. And that's very important to me. Like, I I want to foster a friendship with my children. Like, yes, I'm their parent. I'm, you know, their guardian. Ultimately, like, I'm the adult. But at the same time, I I want one, I want to you know, provide an environment where my kids can be become, they can grow into being good people. Um, And, and so like fostering a safe environment and a learning environment is very important for me.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, you know, the only, the only thing that I, I talk to my kid about a lot is I never talked baby talk with her. Like I talked, even when she was a baby, I talked to her like a regular person. And Mm. for some reason, I think that she liked that. Like, like she always appreciated the fact that I talked to her like a human being, not like I never did baby talk with her. I always found that to be weird. And then the other thing is, is we got to a certain age where I said, you know, I want you to be the person that you are. So if you want to curse in the house, go ahead. So there was like a few months of fuck, 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 fuck. And, but I was just like, look, listen, listen. I'm not telling you to just start cursing all the time. What I'm saying is, is I want you to be able to express yourself. I want you to express yourself to us the way you express yourself. And there was this drastic change in her relationship with her and her mother and and me because we wouldn't give her, her, we wouldn't care if if she said said specific words. It was always her actions were far more important than some of the words. And of course, you you can say, you can't talk like that at school or you can't talk like that in front of your grandmother. You can't talk like that. But at the same time, I noticed, this extraordinarily different relationship change because we wanted her to be able to express herself in a natural way.
1: Yeah, that's super important. Like fostering an environment where self-expression is like important because so many parents, especially when I was a child, you know, things that you would do as a child, no, don't do that. Or like, you know, like it's just... It's it's a constant. Like yes, you know you don't want your kids to be loud all the time. That's you know like quiet it down. You you know you can talk in this manner and still convey your point. But being like allowing for like actual self expression. Like it didn't. It probably didn't even have to be like a cussing situation. It's just the fact that you were like, okay, I
0: think it's okay for you to be this way. There was it was a lot of it was a lot of it was. Because she, we always, she was very, very, frankly, we were very, it was, being polite was very important. So please and thank you was extraordinarily important to us Mm -hmm. and discipline to a certain degree. Like we wanted her to, you know, she did what she, you know, you do what you say you're going to do. And then once she learned that early, there was this sense of like, well, she didn't have to be told all the time. And then... It, it kind of just created more of this more, you know, the more respect. And then she appreciated that. And it's just, it, look, I'm very grateful now she's about to go out to visit schools in California, which I'm not thrilled about. But I'm, I'm uh, throwing my hands up and saying, I want you to get whatever you, you know, anything you want. I want you to have whatever you want. But parenting is tough because, I, you know, I was talking about it with my wife is there was a person in my family who was very close and who used to be very aggressive towards the language that i would say and she would be very very like uh difficult with me in regards to the things that i said even when i was like a teenager like or i was like close to being out don't you you know we don't use that kind of words in this house and you know just belittling me in terms of the words that i was saying like you know, just kind of like you know, bad words and stuff like that. And yeah. I and I realized later in life, she was a bad person who didn't curse. And I just because you say a bad word doesn't make you a bad person. And your actions are far more important than some of the words that you say. And it was this very like, what do you? Why are you worried about if I'm going to be a bad person or not? But bu- if I say fuck once in a while, versus you're just a bad person. You don't curse it. You're a terrible person. So who Who cares? Who cares?
1: Yeah, I think intentions are the way you speak has nothing to do with how you act towards somebody. Of course, if you act out of hate, then it, but you do it the nicest possible way, you're still acting out of hate.
0: Of course, and the biggest problem right now is that most of the most of the problems going on in society are it's parenting issues. It's like you know, this, this stream of, you know, this stream, I'm not going to go into this, but at the same time, it's like this this stream of people not taking responsibility for their for their growing up and not taking responsibility, you know, thinking about the way they were raised. And I'm going to do the same thing my parents did. And if your sh- parents were shitty, most likely, you know, there's a very good chance that you might be a shitty parent too. It's, it's like this breaking, breaking, it's as breaking this cycle and I'm very, you know, just hearing you say that, you know, you're very conscious of that is, I think that's like, you know, you're doing your kids, you're doing your kids a service right off the bat.
1: Yeah. There's, I mean, there's, you know, like you struggle, you struggle with doing the same things that your parents have done. Like it, it's not easy to get away from that cycle. No, it's impossible. It's a lot easier once you address and realize those habits or those actions that your parents used to do. That you're starting to notice in yourself, and then you you if you know that you're doing something, you can address it. Versus if you just if you're in that cycle and you don't you don't take the time to reflect on it, then you're just going to continue to do the same things that your parents did
0: that you don't like. And- it's it's very it's 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 an it's it's probably the number one issue in the in the in the, in the country is like is like coping and parenting and, and stuff like that. But that brings me to, that brings me to what, why did you feel the need to join the military? Was it oh, man, a familial a, thing or? Oh, uh, it's a man. It's a hard one. That's it, It's a lot of
1: things. You know, my dad was in the army. Um, and you know, me and my dad did have a pretty good relationship when I went, when I was a teenager and. Uh, yeah, he you know, rescued it, you. Well, yeah. I mean, to, to a sense, you know, like he, you know, there's that thing. We, we lived in Louisiana up until I was 13 without my father at all. And, you know, we didn't receive, you know, regular child support or anything like that. It, it like became a situation where he either had to come get us or we were going to be living on the street, you know, for, for who knows how long. Um, yeah, he, he rescued us, but he had to, you know, nobody else was coming to get us. Um, so yeah, it, you know we had a we had a good relationship and my dad, you know, he he seemed very much like those small town people in Texas, you know, versus you know, eh. um basically my dad has said a lot of racist and very hateful things that I don't like and he has not the reason I do not talk to my dad, the main reason, because I can call him out on being racist, that's fine. I I can be like, "No, you're being racist. Shut up." Um but he has made zero effort to see my children. My son is five years old. He'll be six in November and my daughter will be three in October. Um, So like, that's, that's a very long time for them to have never met. That's tough. Yeah. and And that ultimately is what started it. And, you know, he's reached out recently trying to be a grandfather and stuff like that. And, he got sober and, you know, he he has changed some stuff around in his life, uh, but all of the stuff he changed came at, at the result of getting in trouble for doing those things. Right. Like, you know, DUIs and stuff. And, um, you know, I, I can give him that, the fact that he's trying to reach out, but it, it's not something he can just step back into. You know, he really has to show effort that he's trying to, to fix the issues he, he's had in the past
0: but it sounds like him just reaching out is let's let time maybe time will tell and you know i f- i feel like i mean i don't know you this is really like the first time we've ever spoken i feel like there is the potential for down the line maybe things can you know we just don't bury it you know it's it seems as though maybe there is like a little i'm a little bit of like you're giving him some props for getting himself sober and even reaching out maybe he's late late in the game but at the same time it's something you know
1: yeah my biggest concern right now is my children i don't want i don't want him to show up and play grandpa right as a stranger to my children of course and that that's the biggest thing like they need they need time to meet him in a safe manner that's not going to be abrupt and confusing Cause right now they have two phenomenal grandparents from my wife. Like, like my mother-in-law watches our kids three, four, five days a week. And you know, when they're not in Montessori school, they're at grandma's house while I'm working and they love grandma, you know, and and it's a great relationship that we have. Um, so it's just like, there's my in-laws set the bar really, really high for what grandparents are and my dad coming in is is not going to I don't want my children to have a bad example of what a grandparent is. Uh,
0: it's tough man. It's parenting's tough. Families are fucking tough, dude. Yeah. It is, it is it, it, the worst thing is, is the funniest part is my wife and I talk about it and and you know I'm in a similar situation because my in-laws are outstanding. Like they're super duper supportive, but at the same time, it's just like, it's enough with the parents. It's like, you get to a certain age, you're just like, okay, I got it. But the fact that you have this kind of new family, once again, this new family, it's just really great.
1: Yeah, no, it really is. And so let's, let's backtrack a little to why I joined the military. So, you know, my dad was in the army. And so that was one thing I wanted to make my dad proud. And, um, I wanted to serve my country. I was still a punk rock kid. Like, yeah, you know, I'm, I, you know, punk, punk rock is, it's is more of a mindset than it is music. Music is based on the mindset of the, that government should be beneficial to people. And we can't seem to find the right recipe for that. um, so like, government's always overreaching in a way, or not doing enough in another way, and so, you know, my there we go. Um, so like that's that's kind of my whole mentality as as especially as a teenager. But I was like, you know, I feel honor in the country because this country has the most potential to be the greatest country in the world. You know, we, it it is a melting pot of cultures. Uh which in my opinion, is super important, like we need to know about other cultures around the world and stuff like that, and then um and then the last thing that kind of pushed me to go into the military is i I dropped out of high school, I got my g e d and I started going to college um, and I ran out of money, I couldn't afford college anymore, so I was like, you know what? I was just going into the military, you know, I had all these other reasons, and I was like, well, that's kind of the icing on the cake.'
0: Were you holding out? Were, were were you? Was the thought that there's a you know it was always on the table, and then were you holding out to see what it would take to make you just make that decision, or were you always thinking, you know, I'm going to go through college?
1: Um, you know, I really don't know. at yeah. You know, at that age, you just don't know the decisions you make at like 18 and 19. You know, you just a lot of the decisions you make at that age are kind of like by the seat of your pants, you know, it's like, Oh, you know, I'll just go in the military. Um, you know, I've, I've always, I grew up around a military base, so I knew kind of what military culture was like. Um, I knew I had another friend who had joined the, the national guard and he got back from basic maybe six months before I joined. And so I like, you know, talked to him about it and stuff like that. And I was like, you know what, I can do that. And I had some friends who were like talking crap because I was I was saying that to them. I was like, oh, that I think I can do that. And they were like, no, you can't, you can't do that. And I was Ugh. like, you know what, I, you know what, yes, I can. Yeah. And then I did. I, I went through basic training at Fort Knox, Kentucky. Uh, I think it was. I joined in two thousand eight, September third of two thousand eight was my join date. So. I was at basic training during like you know the nine eleven kind of ceremonious uh time, right you know like remembering nine eleven
0: yeah
1: um which was crazy, so that's another thing you know join the military at my age uh i'm post nine eleven you know i that's that's always a thought you, you think about anybody who joins the military before nine eleven 11 you know it's relatively peaceful times. Uh, yeah, there's always that scare that something can pop off, like the Cold War and stuff. But um, it was peace, and then right. 9/11 happened, and everybody who joins after 9/11 knows that they're gonna go to war. You know, like wow. that's even if you don't go to war, you know that we're at war. I'm going in the military.
0: Yeah, you know what? I never even thought about that. I, I talked to a lot of guys who. You know, I know Joe Maynard last week, he joined before 9-11 and and I know that a few other friends of ours who in the knife making community that joined after 9-11, but you never really think about that. You think about like, you don't think that like it's after 9-11, you know, that when you sign up, you're going to be in combat.
1: Yeah. And I mean, there, there's over a hundred different jobs you can get in the military, um, and uh, and the the army there is four official classifications for combat. So there's infantry that we all know of. There is scouts. There is tankers, and then there's combat engineers. Those are the only four MOSs in the in the army that are direct combat uh, MOSs. And I was a tanker. Um, so
0: what do you do as a tanker?
1: You operate and. It, Currently I think the platform that they're using now is the M1A2 set V3 um and it's a fancy way of saying the Abrams version the a- the M1A2 Abrams version 3 um, So
0: were you a, were you a, were you a pilot or a driver or so
1: on a I tank mean- there's four different positions there's driver loader gunner TC I have only ever been a gunner and TC on a tank. Yes, I've driven tanks, I've loaded tanks, but my official positions on a tank have always been gunner or TC. Um, so What's TC? Tank commander. Huh. So the guy in charge on the, the tank. Right. Um, and then the gunner is the second highest position on the tank. And then the loader. T- the loader... Uh, and driver kind of interchangeable. Like whoever is better at driving drives. Whoever's better at loading loads. That's kind of how it works. But so my first unit was in South Korea after Fort Knox. Uh, I so Fort Knox. I did basic training. You get to pick at basic training. Basically, you sign paperwork saying I want this duty station in the United States. I picked Fort Hood because it was in Texas, and then I picked. South Korea, because you have to pick an overseas duty station. Um, Well, I got my overseas pick. I didn't get the state's pick. So I went to South Korea. Uh, I performed really well. And I think three months being in South Korea, I got assigned as a tank gunner. Because we were going to shoot a gunnery. And the previous gunner that was on my tank uh, was going to... um, have a change of duty station so they were like well there's no point training him up because he's leaving so let's train up this new guy to be the gunner uh because i i performed really well i was always expert and rifle pistol uh my pt scores were always really high and stuff like that and it's usually the stuff that they're looking at uh so from basically like you know day one, I was in a leadership role in the Army, which isn't common um it's the gunner position is slotted for an e five so a sergeant and as an e two i was a gunner hmm. so like it's it's a lot of responsibility, but I
0: wanted it huh that's interesting do you, when you when you have when when a uh... I don't, I guess you call it crew, a crew, crew. when you have your crew together, is it very tight knit or do you really kind of work as a group for a long time or how does a, how did, what's the, what is the, uh, relationship inside the workings of a tank?
1: Man, that's, so it depends on the duty station and kind of like. You know, you got to build relationships. So if you're moving from duty station to duty station every year, then it's really hard to build up a relationship because everybody has different move dates. You know, like not everybody joins army at the same time, so they don't go to the units at the same time. But in Korea, there we we were all really tight, but that's because we didn't have everything we did had to be with another soldier. So if we went out on the town or whatever, there was our battle buddy with us. You weren't allowed off post without a battle buddy. So like, you always had to have another soldier around you. So you become really, really tight. Um, and, and I think that was really important in, in South Korea. Like we, we were really good. Like everything we did was like all tight knit because we were always around. Everybody else, but in the States, it's a lot different. So like, even if you're at a duty station in the States, people are going home at night. You know, they're, they're, they're not, they are not surrounded by other soldiers when they leave work. Basically they, they can go and do basically whatever they want within the confines of what you're allowed to do in the military. Like if you're going to drive, you can't drive, um, from a military base. I think it's like a hundred miles. You can't drive further than a hundred miles or like, you know what, it maybe less than that. I think it's a thirty minute drive. You can't drive without a pass. So you have to sign up to drive further away from the military installation. Um and it may not get approved. But in in Korea, you, you know, like you're constantly with everybody that you work with on a daily basis. So you get really tight and yeah, I mean there's ego and stuff like that in the military, so there are, you know, heads clashing, but for the most part everybody is real tight and we're all you know we're it's it's crazy because i I equate south korea like being in college without going to school like being in college with like a bunch of weapons because we were all like 18 19 20 and 21 you know like most of us there were real young
0: you know, And there wasn't, like, conflict going on. I mean, there was, like, obviously tension with North Korea. But, I mean, in South Korea, there was a lot less than if you were in Afghanistan or the Middle East.
1: Yeah, yeah. So there's no conflict. We were allowed to go out and drink, you know, all the time. We trained a whole lot. and But if we weren't training, we were drinking. And if we weren't drinking, we were training, uh, which is not a great cycle to be in. But I, I became a very fit alcoholic in Korea. Um I mean, like twelve minute two miles, uh, being able to do like a hundred push ups in two minutes, just stuff like that. Like, and all while being like nursing a hangover. Hmm. <laughs> like, Korea is not a he- healthy place for soldiers to go, but it was. I learned a whole lot in South Korea because we were constantly training, um, and so that kind of pushed me. In my career, like I think me being a gunner, being in an E5 position at my first duty station very early on, and then going to so I went to Fort Knox after that, back where I did basic training as a cadre, which I'm I helped out the tank instructors. Um, and right at two years, I got promoted to E5, so a sergeant, which Uh, that's super unheard of. That's very fat. That's the minimum. Hmm. I I think I I got E five at two years and two months, which is um, you could say people doing well and getting E five. The average time is five years. Huh. So, I I got that. I got promoted to a sergeant, which is a leader. You know, I'm I'm in charge of people now. Uh, it, at Fort Knox I was training new soldiers how to operate tanks and I didn't have a deployment patch what does that mean? I had never deployed I had never been to... Oh so war. that wasn't
0: considered deploying going to South Korea?
1: No well yes and no so it's not a combat deployment okay. it is a deployment you still get uh, stripe. you still get time consider- it's it's a weird thing because Technically, North Korea and South Korea are still at war. They're at a ceasefire. So, and there is tensions and, you know, that were like, we had to be battle ready. So we had like a battle bag that we had to keep packed uh, to take down to our tanks. We had a 30 minute recall notice, uh, stuff like that. But it wasn't like going to Iraq, you know, where you are at war. You can't drink. uh, You're under general order one which means that basically all fun things are gone like you you're in uniform constantly you're carrying around a rifle or a pistol with you everywhere you go you know Korea wasn't like that
0: right so um, were you de- when you were deployed to Iraq was was that on your first deployment or
1: yeah so i've only been on one combat deployment and that was to Iraq and so Um, what I was getting at when I was at Fort Knox, Kentucky as cadre training new soldiers coming in the army without a deployment patch was like, this isn't right. I'm a sergeant. I, and I don't have experience that most sergeants have. So I re enlisted to go to Fort hood because Fort hood is the number one deployable military installation. So, um, I transferred to Fort hood and deployed five months after getting to Fort hood to Iraq.
0: Were you nervous?
1: Yes and no. Um, you know, there's always that looming sense of, like, I'm going to die, going to war. You know, like, that's, that's what happens at war. Um, but I, it was my choice. Hmm. Like, I chose to go to, I could have stayed at Fort Knox, Kentucky, and rode it out and never have gone on a deployment. But I chose to go to Fort Hood so I could could deploy. Do you think it was to test yourself? No, I think it was to earn the same respect that the NCOs I looked up to had. Wow. Hmm. Because I feel like I I was lesser of a non commissioned officer because I had not deployed right. during a wartime, and I I also as somebody I was a I was a tank instructor you know i was teaching these kids how to operate a tank at war and i had never been to war so it just it it meant it made me feel like i i was what i was doing was fake
0: punk rock ethics you yeah, have the little punk rock ethics you want <laughs> you want to you want to get make sure that you're not a poser. I'm imagining it's yeah, really and same it, thing. yeah, and
1: that yeah, it, it it's a lot. Not like that I'm that. not
0: that, I'm not making. I'm trying to I'm not trying to make it minimize it, but I'm just I'm seeing that there's you know in the punk rock ethos, it's always this this you know you want the truth. You know you want to be for, genuine. Yeah, and yeah. You want to be you want the truth and you want the genuine. I would imagine that there's a, probably a little bit of that, obviously.
1: Yeah, and it's that experience and like you know I I deployed in 2011 uh, and that lasted till mid 2012 I was in Iraq for 7 months and in Kuwait for 6 months my unit was the last occupying unit in Iraq Jeez. Um, yeah so it I the area I was in was the Babel province which is modern day Babylon um I actually got to visit Babylon during some uh, very uh, top secret stuff we were doing. We were, uh, we were escorting. Well, you don't mean, well, no, I can, I, I'm not going to tell you details. We were escorting, um, suit wearing individuals to a sheik, which is like a mayor. um, for them to discuss some stuff. I don't know exactly. I'm pretty sure some money was being exchanged. Uh, there's a big bag that didn't come back with us. Okay. Um, All right.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, this is, I mean,
1: obviously we, and, but these suit wearing individuals wanted to do some sightseeing while we were there. So we, we visited like Babylon, like, you know, the gates of Babylon and stuff like that. And, um, I got to stand where Alexander the great died, which is huge for me because he is like historically one of my favorite, um, conquerors and people because of how he most people who conquer conquer in the name of how their society is he conquered in the name to bring societies together and learn as cultures like so when he conquered uh persia he wanted them to still have their culture intact and he he so much so that he had his army and stuff like that learn their culture Hmm. instead of impose his own culture onto other cuz he's from macedonia so like which is it's it's romanesque but it's not roman it, it's still kind of uh, a middle eastern culture but the, very highly influenced by roman culture so that that was huge for me like not to get into a huge history lesson but being able to stand where he died was like, man, this is like chills running down my spine. Like, not nobody can do that. You can't sign up to go to Iraq and, you know, tour this place.
0: Wow. That must yeah. have been crazy.
1: Oh, it was, it was nuts. And it, it was nuts because, like, the bricks that were in this building were all engraved by, uh, it was Saddam Hussein who ran Iraq at one point, right? Right. Yeah, so he had all, his name engraved on all the bricks
0: that's crazy
1: yeah and most of what like the walls of babylon a lot of that is in germany still intact one of the lions are is in germany the other one is there but the face is blown off of it Uh, i think that was during world war one they shot it with a cannon and so like seeing all of this stuff and like it's this area is so war-torn everywhere you go it's like this war happened here during this time this war happened this war happened and it's like man this is nuts but like it there's still enough intact where you're like this was still amazing Hmm. not many people can say that they've been there in their lifetime
0: were you when you were younger were you fascinated with history is this something that you've always been interested in or certain things in history yes um I was not fascinated
1: in history class because I usually had very bored. Most of my history teachers were coaches and they don't care. Right. So, you know, like they, they're teaching history because they're trying to be coaches, not the other way around. They're not being coaches right. because they're trying to teach history. So I, it was always like, read this chapter in the book, write this report on it. But like the stuff I cared about in history, like I really died diet, like dove into, uh, you know, like, that kind of plays into knife making, like a lot of stuff I like is it, 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 like it's historical to me, and that's how I kind of design my work.
0: I can see that we're going to get there. We're going to get there because I—it's definitely something part of your work is very much along the lines of there is this sense of, you know, uh, respect towards history. There's a like a big giant nod to history. So we're going to get there. We're going to get there. When you're driving a tank how does it how long does it is are the tanks like ready are you also the mechanic as well or are you responsible for it like what's the mobilization like of a, a tank crew um
1: so we do have tank mechanics and so the way it works is it's level of responsibility so the crew our mechanics, I was a 30 level mechanic, which is the highest mechanic level you can be as a crew member, and then tank mechanics are 40 level, so they, they can do everything on a tank to fix it. I can do general maintenance, get it running on a battlefield, you know, to to where we need to go kind of stuff, like, oh, we we had track blown off, we can put the track back together, we had, you know, a sprocket broke, we can put the sprocket back on, or a new one, Track wheels, all of that stuff, engine stuff. You know, the tank is there for every part of the mechanics and cleaning and everything. Like, I, you know, was fixing hydraulic leaks, all of that stuff. So, yeah, like, we're, you know, you have to be operation ready because the mechanics not on your tank if you lose hydraulic pressure during war. You know, like, that's something you got to figure out.
0: So, on the tank is also a ton of repair stuff. Oh my God! Yes, a tank. Like how much weight? How much weight in that tank is like, you know, uh, backup repair stuff?
1: Uh, so a fully battle loaded M1A2 SEP V2 is seventy two tons. I think it's about sixty eight tons non battle loaded. So then, or you know, it may be less than that. Maybe 65 72
0: tons. tons. A tank is seventy two tons.
1: Yeah, seventy-two tons. That's insane. Tons. Fully battle loaded, so each round weighs about seventy-five pounds. Each tank round weighs about seventy-five pounds. You have forty, forty-six rounds total. Oh my god! Um, that does not include small arms or the weight of small arms. So fifty cal's. I think the new SEPs have, or the new Abrams have two fifty cal's, which weigh like a hundred and thirty pounds apiece. And then the ammo for those you're carrying uh two to four thousand rounds for the fifty cals, sixteen thousand rounds for the the two uh,
0: m fourteens are are the tanks comfortable when you've got four guys in there oh well, loaded no. the gills
1: no uh so the tank. The require the height requirement for a tanker is anybody under six is six one and under. I am six two, so oh. it, it was not comfortable for Wait, me. Wait, so
0: how did they, so they so could they, if you're over six one, they say that's this is not for you. Yeah, and uh, then how'd you get in then? I slouched. Oh my God! <laughs> oh, so you're like in the you're like the you're more than the highest. I am, person. I am that... taller than
1: most people who operate tanks. There were a few people as tall as me. who Probably did the same thing. Uh, you know, I joined during combat, so they they kind of let some things slide. Right.
0: Yeah, they're uh, Not gonna like. Not
1: during gonna send you away. So and that's the funny thing. When I was in Iraq, I, I was never on a tank. I was in a Humvee, and I was in an. Uh, mrap came in which is like this huge up armored van um i was we were doing foot patrols and we were doing presence patrols in the vehicles and off-road reconnaissance and stuff like that um so anytime i was doing a foot patrol i was the man pack operator which is the long range radio which uh the the batteries for those are 20 20 pounds. Jeez. I had to carry three batteries plus the system which is another 30 pounds. Uh or I was the saw gunner which is it's it's a fully automatic um 556 five, you know gun and you carry I think I was carrying 6000 no 2000 rounds. Um and then we had another guy who was carrying a couple thousand rounds themselves, but the the weight I was carrying on foot patrols was like an added hundred pounds to my already hundred pound battle load Jesus, yeah and that's just because I was like the biggest guy,
0: and I'm i would not... imagine I would imagine you would wish you'd been in that tank, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, I mean even like I mean humvees are pretty comfortable. We stopped running humvees, I think it was. Three or four months after being in Iraq, we my Humvee got blown up. Um, we were running two Cayman, two Humvees on our patrols. The Humvees were to recon, like, dirt roads and stuff like that to see if the Caymans could actually navigate them without falling into canals. What's a Cayman? It's, it is a heavily armored, wheeled vehicle that looks like a giant van um it it is a uh personnel carrier okay there is a gun turret on top with a person operating Hmm. usually it was a 240 um which is an automatic machine gun um and then the you know like it's just they're super up armored they're designed for ied blaster they're they i think it's like a 16 to 20 inches off the ground and then they have v-shaped holes so the blast goes outwards if they drive over an ied hmm.
0: um
1: the humvees are not built like that though so um if a humvee gets blown up it gets blown up Then i mean you're you're in an armored box but it's still pretty that's why they told us to stop doing it uh using our humvees um The explosive was an EFP, which stands for Explosive Firing Projectile.
0: Uh, So just take me back to the day. Take me back to that day. You guys are going on patrol on recon, and you're in the Humvee?
1: Yeah, so the way our patrol was set up is on upgraded road conditions so concrete pavement anything like that we would run the caymans up front and we would run the two humvees in the back so four vehicles total uh and then on downgraded road conditions we would run the humvees up front you know because we're testing the road conditions to make sure our larger vehicles can actually navigate um so the we were on pavement we were it was the end of our shift which i did night shifts we we were getting back to we were heading back to post i think it was like 6:30 in the morning mm. and i mean we were heading back uh we go down one of our main supply routes to this point where we can do a u-turn and then go back uh so about three miles from where we did this u-turn is where they set everything up and we had this tradition uh like y- you know like you know how people have like good luck charms like for the football yeah. teams and stuff yeah. like that well we had something like that we we would sing uh backstreet boys hilarious um, a very specific song go ahead uh, which song i'm trying to remember the, oh come you know, on the lyrics and this was in 2011. That is
0: insane. dude. You, this is such an intense story. Then you're just like,
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, and <laughs> it, it's it's so funny too. My my uh, staff sergeant, my vehicle commander, um, I so I was driving. My vehicle commander was sitting there next to me, and we're belting this because you know we have headphones on and stuff like that. There's no radio, so we have to you know belt this out. Like we're not like quiet about this. We're just belting it. Um, we're singing it. Uh, you know, just jamming out like you would singing a song that you all know, you know, you all have your parts and my T my vehicle commander, uh, he, he's, um, Micronesian. He, he looks very Samoan, but short. And so if you can imagine this very short, stocky Samoan looking guy singing Backstreet Boys with us and like super happy guy,
0: we're driving. Hold it. I'm going to read off some songs, and you're going to tell me which song it is, okay? Okay. Backstreet song. It's I Want It That Way, Um, Everybody, As Long As You Love Me, Show Me The Meaning of Being Lonely, Shape of My Heart, Quit Playing Games. I think it's I Want It That Way. I Want It That Way. Yeah. All right. I Want It That Way. Yeah, man. It's a pretty good one. That's a pretty good one. That's a pretty good one to... (laughs) to want to be your uh, good luck song. Yeah, it's, no. It's very, uh, it's very. It's not just like chance. It's not hope. It's like you're, you're manifesting. It's a song about manifesting what you want in life.
1: Yeah. I got you. It was so much. I mean, it was just fun. It was like, yeah, okay, of course. this, this happy that song that we all had our parts. Tell you know?
0: me why. I got yeah, you. Yeah, that's exactly
1: you. it. Yes. There you go. Um, okay. So <laughs> we're driving it. You know, we're all singing. We're belting. Yeah. And then Black Cloud of Smoke – my Humvee, of armored Humvees weigh quite a bit. I, I think they're like 5 or 6 tons. The front end of my Humvee jumped about 2 feet off the ground. And there was this um, orange streak about 8 inches in front of my field of vision. Like right in front of the windshield. Um, and as soon as the front end of my vehicle pops back on the ground, I, I floor it.
0: Oh, you were he, driving.
1: Yeah, I was driving. So I floor it. This is like, you got to get out of that. What they do is they bottleneck you. They, they put you in this zone where you can't see them and they can see their target. And so if you stay in that spot, they're going to open up with small arms. So you got to go, you got to get out of that spot. If, if your vehicle can move, you go. Uh, so I floored it. We were still mobile. So uh, I floored it. I got about 20 meters up close to the MRAPs. I was the third vehicle in the convoy. So got it right up next to them. Um, as soon as we cleared it, I looked over to my vehicle commander and he, he immediately gave me a thumbs up. And then we both punched our uh, gunner as hard as we could, like punched him right in the legs. And he just like throws his thumb down, like, like thumbs up at us and then immediately gets back on the gun. And then we had our, our interpreter in the back. He was the only one without a headset on and he's just holding his ears and shaking his head. So we knew he was okay. He was, he was moving, but he, he like couldn't hear anything. Um, and then we just all laughed. We just all busted out laughing. And it's like, I guess they really didn't like our singing.
0: Oh my God. That it must've been incredible nervousness.
1: Well that's just you hear about people you know like they they laugh when they're nervous well it was just like we couldn't help it it was just like and it was like I mean you're are your whole body's tingling like you're you're not in a a it's all it's all fight now
0: adrenaline yeah a there's no adrenaline. F-
1: yeah there's no flight it's all fight you're all in combat mode you're all reverting back to your training like there is no it's you turn into autopilot um Yes, complete adrenaline, you know, like w- when I checked my vehicle commander, like that was just immediate. I didn't think about it. I wasn't like, "Is he okay? I was just like, I looked over at him, he gave me the thumbs up, and then we both like not you could tell it wasn't even a split second that we both just hit our gunner, like just to make sure, and i I know I hit him super hard, and I know my vehicle commander did too, and like you could tell that he was in the same mode. It it just, you don't, it's not something you ever experience. No. Like, so, you know, we got control of the situation and what an EFP is. So it's like an IED, except there is a projectile. So instead of it just being an explosion, you know, instead of it just being like area damage, there's the explosion. And then there is something shot. And the way I can equate what was shot is um, there's this tank round called a heat round. And what it is, is it is a armor-piercing round that has a tip that has a rod made out of copper or steel and then a copper cone that it is rammed into, and then there's propellant behind the cone. And once that propellant ignites, it superheats up. That cone and that rod into a molten plasma slug, which is about a thousand degrees hotter than the surface of the sun, Jeez. that melts the armor as it's penetrating. So, if that slug had actually hit my vehicle, I think everybody in the vehicle but the interpreter in the back seat would have been dead. Jesus. Yeah. So it was I mean we got super lucky they had they set it up it was a 50 pounds explosive set up on the back of a street sign so you couldn't see it um and they they had set it up for an MRAP so the the MRAPs like I said they they have a much higher profile than the Humvees and I think that's part of what saved us
0: cuz there was they, like a populated part of the, the city or um, it was a dirt road, or I mean
1: it was like the end of the 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 small city we were in Jeez. like there were we were on the highway kind of right outside the city, and they were at the the person who pressed the button for the explosive was right at the housing or the houses or buildings that we could see off to our right um we saw him as he was fleeing, and you can't engage on a fleeing target, so uh. Yeah, they just, you know, popped a shot and left.
0: Jesus Christ! Now you're driving away. You're back with the M You guys are laughing, filled with adrenaline, nervous, ter- probably just grateful to be alive. Yeah, you you took some damage, didn't you?
1: Yeah. So we took minor shrapnel damage uh, to the vehicle, and then I mean, of course, we we all had you know TBIs being in in the blast. Like, what's what's that? Uh, traumatic brain injury. So the 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 explosive force rattles your head. Basically, um, it's it's like getting a concussion. Uh, I mean, it is a concussion. It, it's like getting hit by another football player right to the head. Um, if you can imagine a fifty-pound explosive going off, you know, five ten feet away from you. That that's what it was. Like you know, like a stick of TNT is like eight ounces. So imagine that times 100 yeah so um it you know it <laughs> it it's crazy to to experience that you know like like i said like it immediately was like there there it was one second to the next they're like we were singing explosion black smoke literally filled everything in, in less than a second. Like, I was looking at daylight, and then all of a sudden I was filled with black smoke. So it it's so immediate that you just... you There's, like, no... There's no way somebody without training can react. Hmm. And then you have to wait. You, you get the area secured. Basically, we're in a formation to where we can... See 360 you know, where the guns are set up to where they have a field of fire. Um, the local Iraqi army shows up uh, and they were like, yeah, we saw the slug land about 50 meters from our base, which was about a mile away. So they show up and we have to wait for EOD to clear the area before we can leave. And EOD takes their time, I think it was like an hour and a half before they showed
0: up. Now, did you have any, like shrapnel or you have any minor damage or the
1: the vehicle took shrapnel but, but you didn't no no all we you know it's funny it's it's hard to equate it you know we say all we had was a tvi but that's that's an it's injury huge. yeah it's huge you know it's it's something that you know i still deal with to to today there's like memory loss issues Ugh. i i literally don't remember the the following day of that event like that I just don't know what happened the following day. I I know we got back. We were tested for TBI. We were all cleared to rest. And then I don't remember anything for 24 hours. Jesus
0: Christ.
1: Yeah. um, And, and man, it's, it's just, it's crazy because like, I only went on one deployment. I had that happen. I had a bunch of other less significant Things happen. we were constantly dealing with indirect fire while we' were on the fob and I was in the D one day and the the barriers surrounding the building de is a dining facility. The barriers surrounding that they're like a foot thick concrete barriers that stand 20 foot high. Uh, we got the barriers got hit with two rail rockets that are like five feet long. Um, they just blew like a 10 foot hole in the barrier. But nobody got hurt in, inside the dining facility, and then two people got care flighted because they were within the blast radius, and they had um, hematoma, hematomas of the ear or hematoma. Oh, yeah. So basically, their ears were bleeding.
0: Were you at... Throughout this whole... Mo- are you Are you waking up in the morning saying, like, this is it. This could be it today. I mean, are you feeling like... Are you feeling... Is there a daunting feeling? Is there nervousness? Is there, or are you past that?
1: I, I you know, when I first got there, there were th- things that set me off and made me like n- nervous. And then after experiencing like constant stuff, because I mean, it was every other night we were getting, you know, the sirens were going off because we were either getting mortared or rocketed. And, um, you know, we, it got to the point to where me and my roommate, we were in these like, Uh, shipping containers that had ac basically and they were only big enough for two individuals to sleep in um so every other night you hear the sirens and it got to the point where him and i would wake up and be like are you going to the the bunker which the bunk we say bunker but it's literally like a concrete culvert with sandbags on top of it and so we're just like no i'm not getting out of bed and it's like yeah me either you know like we felt that that Bunker was not providing more protection than the metal container that we were in, so it was wow. just like no point. It's like if if we get hit there, the same thing that is going to happen if we get hit here. So there's no point. And there's and, no AC.
0: There's no AC in the.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like we can't sleep comfortably <laughs> there. So,
0: you know what a f- what a f- what a thing what a thing that, that to be prepared for.
1: Right, and and it was you know, well it was also a lot of the indirect. You know, you only occupy so much of the installation you're on Uh, and then the rest is just you know like training grounds like where we can go shoot and stuff like that so it's all barren except for you know where we sleep and eat Um, and where like our you know um, operations buildings are and all of that is right next to each other and you know if they don't have accurate ways of shooting those rockets or mortars (laughs) we're only occupying maybe 20% 20% of the installation so there's a lot of area for them to not hit us
0: yeah but still yeah even the thought of it is like even though it's only 20% you're just like I don't want to take that chance either
1: yeah I mean it's it's a weird thing to get acclimated to yeah
0: I can imagine I can't imagine I have no idea I've no I've no I've no imagination to that at all None. no no it,
1: it's it, it's weird. I could see how it's weird for other I mean it was it was weird for me the first, you know, like couple of weeks there. Like everything was setting me off. I was nervous about everything and then I finally just got used to it and um yeah, it's just it's it's crazy Tr- training does a lot. You you would the more you train, the more you train your body to to react in situations, the better your body is at reacting in those situations. It completely takes your mind, that equation of your brain out of it. Like, you know, something happening that you've been trained for, for years, you're a lot more likely to react in a positive manner than if you have no training at all.
0: Yeah. So when you come back from serving, how how was it translating back into being back in the United States? Um, so
1: I got out of the army f- probably five months after my deployment to Iraq. Uh, I was married and had gone through a divorce. My divorce actually got finalized the day I landed in country on my deployment. Uh, so... I basically became a bachelor while I was deployed and then came back to the States as a bachelor. And so that was weird. You know, like I was still, I never had time to, you know, go through the motions of being divorced because I was deployed. right? And so that's kind of what I was doing and trying to figure out who I was, what I was doing, you know, and that ultimately is part of why I got out is like, I don't have a family that I need to support anymore. I can kind of, you know, focus on me. Uh, and I gave my platoon sergeant an ultimatum um I I told him if he doesn't send me to the promotion board for E6 that I was getting out um because I was tired of all the responsibility without the rank cuz every every position I was in in the army was a position that was above my pay grade so I was never getting paid for the responsibility I had right um and I was just like I was you know, i I was ready for that next position. Uh and he, he he drug his feet. Uh I think I was three months into out processing and he came to me and said he was gonna send me to the board. And I had already signed paperwork to get out at that point and I was just oh. like, You you missed your chance. It's like you you lost a good soldier, um because you just drug your feet. So I got out and I started going to school for music. And I oh. have a I have an associates in music.
0: What and do you, what do you play anything or
1: i play everything i play um bass is my primary instrument, but i was in a uh, classical guitar ensemble I played cello piano you know you take voice lessons wow uh, play drums guitar um yeah i just i i i'm always been into music i've been, i've played in a few punk bands and punk and hardcore bands and stuff like that and was going to school, but I was also I was doing a lot of stupid stuff. So, when I got out of the Army two weeks after I got out, I was skating in Baton Rouge, and uh, I was going to skate in one of my first competitions. I started skateboarding a whole lot when we got back from Iraq, because I had how, so how much old time. Were you?
0: How old were you when you when you started skateboarding after your deployment? After, after leaving the Army?
1: So, I, I skateboarded a, a lot. And I skateboarded in the Army. Um, but you just got to be a lot careful. If you injure yourself doing recreation activities, you can get in trouble in the mm. army. So I was, I was careful, but I was getting good, and that's why I was like down in Baton Rouge. I was going to skate in a competition.
0: Wait, do you were you skating in Iraq? No,
1: no, you don't. You break a skateboard. No, you can't bring. I mean, literally, I'm I'm in uniform the whole time in Iraq. You can't right. skate. There's no doing um, the
0: ollies in uniform. No, no,
1: exactly. But when I was back at Fort Hood, they had they actually had skate parks that were decent on. Fort Hood, so I would skate at some of those and stuff like that, and then I Austin was an hour and a half drive south, so I would go down there and skate. Um, and I would skate so much, and it was just a, a thing to like keep my head clear. Yeah, you know, I don't think about anything while I'm skating, but skating. So you know, like I said, I was still dealing with a divorce because I never really had that time to cope with the fact that I'm you know divorced. So I was skating a lot. Um and I I shattered my knee 2 weeks after getting out of the army, like my official date. 2 weeks after that I shattered my left knee.
0: Aye, aye, aye.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so uh you know I was going to school at the time too. So it, was, it wasn't a big deal because I didn't have to work or anything like that. I was on unemployment, on my GI bill going to school. Uh and and so I was just, you know, going through being a college kid at, God, I think I was 20, 23 or 24, going to school. And that honestly, like tr- going into the military was easier than transitioning back into being a civilian, especially really? going to college around a bunch of
0: children. <laughs> yeah, because you're, you're five years older than like the oldest kid there
1: yeah but it's more than just being older than them it's also like my life experience is much more than all of the children there you know like not only did i go to iraq but i went to korea and experienced other cultures i traveled you know a lot and i just i everything to those college kids was so difficult but i look at it I was just like, they complain about so much without a reason for complaint. And it was, it was daunting. Like, and they, everybody thought, you know, that they're, you know, everybody thought they were a chief or, you know, somebody important. And I had experienced the last five years of my life knowing my pecking order. Hmm. And then I, I go to a place where everybody thinks they're the most important.
0: You're walking around singing Backstreet Boys. (laughs) <laughs> preparing for preparing for what's next. I yeah, I would imagine that the coping of dealing with people who have no I mean, your experience was fraught with I mean, just uncertainty about your own life. You know, yeah. the, the, the 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 stakes are so much greater than than what it's like being on a college campus, I can imagine it's probably you're probably resentful to a certain degree.
1: Yeah, and it yeah. It, and it sucks to say, but you are. It, it's okay. There's nothing
0: wrong with being resentful as long as you're admitting it. It's nothing wrong. Yeah, with it. you don't want to be, but you are. It's no, just, of like, course. But I mean, you know, you're human,
1: right? And it's it's just like everybody's experiences. You know, like yes, things are hard, and everybody yeah. experiences hardships differently. Um, but it, it's it it is hard for somebody who has experienced very difficult things to yeah. be like. Yeah, you you know, that girl dumping you is not that big of a deal, dude.
0: <laughs> like, it, that's, see, but the, there's this, there's this, there's, in, when you were talking about pecking orders, there is this strange feeling of like equating, you know, personal traumas, you know, and it's only, yeah. it's impossible. You can't really, well, and that's, everything's apples and oranges, in exactly. That
1: you know, everybody experiences life differently, and right. if you were to equate your hardships with somebody else's hardships, yeah, it's it just, impossible. They, you can't, they it's don't, not, it's not fair.
0: Yeah, it's no, it, fa- really, it really isn't,
1: but when you're coming back from, like, war... Yeah, you're
0: being honest.
1: Yeah, it's just everybody everybody thought they were more important than they were. Um, and they, it, even, like, when I was getting jobs and stuff like that, it was, like, everybody... In the army, like, you were told from day one, you're not shit. And even as you gain rank, you're still not shit. Like, the person over you is still in charge of you, you know? And, and there's always somebody higher than you on the totem pole. And you're also your whole day, your whole week, your whole month, your whole year is already planned out for you. Like you don't like so much so like doctor appointments, dental appointments. That's all planned. You just show up when you're supposed to.
0: So this bring this bring this is interesting because it brings me to the question that I've had for you, uh, thinking about you know you coming on and, and just talking to you about your experiences. You when you're when you become a knife maker you 're expressing yourself to a certain degree and you have this degree of you have this degree of uniqueness not just i mean within within not only the knife making community the making community but with people in general you 're expressing yourself in the sense of creating your own persona and it's very you 're individual mm-hmm. How does that translate when you 've spent all these years being in the military where there is no individuality you 're meant to be uh, you're meant to be, you're meant to be trained and put in a position of, you know, you know, whatever, pe- a specific pecking order, without being able to stand out. How do you make that transition?
1: So, you know, in uniform you're all the same, right? But you're still who you are outside of uniform. Like that, the uniform doesn't change that. You you just have a certain level of responsibility in uniform and out you know like there are certain things you can't do out, outside of uniform you know like I couldn't have a pierced nose uh you know I I was still a representative of the U.S. Army so anything I did you know that could put, potentially put a bad light on the U.S. Army uh is you just have to you know understand that you are a representative of the U.S. Army but still I still listen to the same music I still skateboarded you know, I had a, I have a motorcycle, all of that stuff. Like, I'm still an individual, but I just happen to have a profession that a lot of people don't have, that is uh, less lenient than other professions. So,
0: getting into knife making, though, is I, I now I get I get it. I, get it. I, I I guess I was very uh, naive in regards to the thoughts of that. What gets you into knife making?
1: Um, so originally what did it, it was during, you know, healing my left leg. I was in a full leg cast for a year. Um, Oh my God. Yeah. It was, luckily I was going to school. Like, I don't think I could have handled a lot, but I was getting very stir crazy. And I have a tattoo artist friend who was, who was making knives and he was finishing some handles in the shop one day that I, I was at the shop. And I was like, you know what? I think I can do that. I'm I'm going to give it a try and I did what everybody shouldn't do and I grabbed a circular saw and I cut it up, welded pieces together for the tangs and shaped these blades on a bench grinder and stuck them in some antler and called them knives. And but I you- I I went through the process of heat treating them, but not understanding you know I heated them up with a torch and dunked them in oil and These were the first official knives I made unofficial knives, and they were garbage they weren't hardened knives or anything like that, but that was the first time I tried making a knife uh and I had during that timeline, I had met my wife over instagram uh and so after my leg was healed and I was able to travel this that spring break, my second year in school, I came up to Iowa and met her in Iowa City, and then uh, went back home, finished the school year out, and then moved up here. And then, I think about a year and a half after moving up here, I gave knife making a, a like actual go. How,
0: how did you meet her on Instagram?
1: the same way i knew the same way i met you on instagram through messages I I mean, through like, through, like not, following like, each other she she like, dropped in my messages she like she slid was, into your dms she slid into my dms
0: strong move or no
1: she commented on a post i commented back and then she slid into my dms strong move yeah and it it's crazy this because, is fleming high level well i don't know what I did to my my wife is like leagues above me um and she's not gonna listen to this so, but I hope she I'm sure she knows, but she's leagues above me so I don't know what I did to do that but i'm I'm glad it happened um but so I moved up here we were living in a very small apartment and then we got a house in iowa City um and I started making knives in the garage and watching a ton of YouTube. Like, I mean, so the job I had was at a music store and I was a rental warehouse manager at this, u- at this music store. So basically I inventoried instruments, stocked them on the shelves during my inventory process, which is on like Excel. Uh, I, I had two monitors, so I would play YouTube videos in one monitor and f- put in all the numbers in Excel on the other monitor. So I was I was learning how to make knives at work, and I, there were days I was working ten hour days, and I was this is what I would do all day. But it, I mean, I like my job got done, so that was never an issue. Uh, and it was a music store; they're you know they're leaning anyway.
0: What were your go to YouTube, videos? Jeremy. YouTubers? Jeremy. Jeremy, Simple Little Life. Yeah,
1: Jeremy, Green Beetle, um, who uh, Walter Searle's. There were a few other ones that just um, weren't making good knives. Uh, I, because, you know, I wanted to watch some of the blacksmithing and bladesmithing stuff, too. Because Jeremy doesn't bladesmith. and But high-level finish. Oh, um, man. Speaking of high-level finish, I'm trying to think of his name. Like, the master of finish videos on YouTube.
0: Nick, Nick Wheeler? Nick Wheeler, yes. Oh, yeah. uh, of like course. A, he's the OG right there. Yeah. The, Nick Wheeler... Uh, he listens to this podcast. I'm waiting for him to come on, but I mean, you know, yeah, he you needs wanna, to he's be on to him. Open that invite. Yeah,
1: his, I mean, his videos, you know, like they're they definitely stepped up the game for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, for sure. But I was by by a mile.
1: Yeah, I need to go back and watch a lot of those videos because I was not good enough at the time for some of that stuff, and I've excelled quite a bit since then. So,
0: but shout yeah. out to Nick Wheeler. Nick Wheeler makes people spend money. P.S. <laughs> I had to watch a few Nick Wheeler videos before I decided to get my disc grinder. And he, I watched his video and like, all right, it's good enough for Nick. It's good enough for me. And that's what, that's what made me buy a disc grinder was watching Nick. Yeah. Nick's made me spend some money. Yeah. And even, even
1: Wheeler. like he, he, he's like, get on eBay and buy some new old stock files. And though, I mean, finding those nowadays is not cheap either. And, but they, I do a lot of file, um, like, when, when I'm doing my handle work, I do a lot of file shaping. Um, it just helps. Like, I'm not that great on the belt grinder. I'm no Marekko. Like, I can't finish an, a knife handle on the belt grinder. I can get it close, and then I'll clean everything up on with files and sandpaper. Um, but th- having good files really helps with that.
0: Yeah. So, when you start to figure out what you want to do, you got the bug. You were saying that you should never make it with... You know, when you f- make your first knife, you're never thinking that it's going to be a career. You're thinking, i got to knock something out fast. Yeah. And you don't know. You don't give a shit. I mean, it's like whatever it takes to get you the next one doesn't really matter, honestly. You know, but what, what makes you, what style, because, I mean, your work now, when I look at your work, I see this, this frontier style. And I actually wanted to talk about it in a sense of like, uh, we were talking before about history and your love of history and stuff like that. There is a frontier style towards your tomahawks, your Bowie knives. And even those, I want to talk about those war clubs you make because I was kind of looking into them, uh, looking into the kind of the derivation of those. And it's really kind of interesting, but what kind of like led you towards this frontier style?
1: So, i i really like the the west the idea of the west and and anything involving it and i'm i'm a nerd man i play video games and stuff like that and one of my favorite video games is red dead redemption one and two and they focus a lot on the weapons that were used during like the west um uh, so that's another thing, and then like you know, the like, colonial area, frontier men, like that's always been something really fascinating to me, and native culture and stuff like that. It's all really fascinating, and those gunstock war clubs, those are those are new to history. You know, th- yes. those are those are as old as the United well, States, which is very up, let's young. Let's just set it
0: up because let's set up the the gunstock war clubs is very interesting because. I did a little bit of research on it just because it's something. It was something I'd never seen before. You do it, and I don't know. I'm not 100 percent sure else who does it. So if you're listening to this, you can go obviously go to Wasteland underscore Forge and see what James is up to. But they look like they look like a gun stock, an old gun stock, mm-hmm. and then where the the butt kind of breaks after the, where you would grip the handle, above where that handle is, there's like a knife or a spike in it, mm-hmm. and they look like. These clubs, but they also look like they were muskets or, or or rifles. And I was thinking about it, and I was just like, "Geez, I wonder how that all came about." And it was interesting thinking, hearing the the derivation of where they came from. And it's, what's interesting too is, you know, Iowa. I was looking at it. Iowa has a huge amount. of I mean, there is a connection somewhere between these war clubs and being in Iowa. Mm-hmm. So tell so- us about the tell us about the derivation of these interesting war clubs because they are new
1: yeah so they're i mean like i said they're as old as the united states um or you know a little younger because it was during the colonization it was late 18th century early 19th century is when these were developed they were they were designed straight off of muskets you know like when you shoot one round out of a musket if somebody's close you're using that musket as a club now um and and that's they saw how effective that was and so specifically it's the eastern plains natives and eastern mountain natives that were using them and i'm on i'm right literally like right on the mississippi river where yeah. i live like i can walk down the street and see the mississippi river um so this area over uh to to the eastern seaboard or whatever is where they originated and where they were used you know i Every culture has war clubs around the world. Like, you know, before we were fighting each other with rifles and stuff like that, we were using sticks and stones and then metal. You know, like that's everybody has war clubs. So it's just different variations of what these war clubs were. And I'm so fascinated with the aesthetic style of the Gunstock War Club.
0: Because it's the, you'd think that they were originally made out of gun stocks, but it be, because there's so many holes in gun stocks and so much, they're not as strong once the, you know take the metal out of it. So they were making the the clubs to emulate that that's that size and that shape, right? Yeah,
1: and it's crazy because if you look at a musket, especially back in the day, they they had really pronounced stocks, like the the portion where it sat on your shoulder. Was it, it's not like they are today. It was really pronounced, and they were pointy, and they just they made good clubs. They did just happen to be a lot longer than gunstock war clubs. Is and it I
0: because th- like the, back then the the butt was almost like it broke down farther on the center line of the rifle than than they do now. Like it, it seems yeah. as though it's almost like almost like a forty five degree angle.
1: Yeah, it was very close to a 45-degree, uh, and they came to a very pronounced point at at the club end, mm. so, and I, I think that's by design. I think muskets were, because they were a single-shot weapon, unless you had some distance. You know, it, it takes, I think a musket during that time took anywhere from 8 to 15 seconds to load because mm. you, you had to put your powder uh your primer and your ball in and you had to pack the ball and the powder and then you had to cock it and shoot and you know that you you pull a rod out of the front of this thing to do all of this so it's it's a very slow reloading weapon and i mean if you're fighting people in in woods you're gonna get one shot off before you, you have to use melee weapons so yeah that's it's it's crazy stuff like thinking about that and then um so these being relatively new weapons like it, the, the history especially during the time wasn't well kept on like the they are derived from muskets we don't know what tribes started them we don't know the exact origins but there's this thing that happens in in human history where we we learn something, even if we're a hundred miles away, as a collective, somehow we learn it everywhere. You know, like the first time tools were used, it wasn't just like this single tribe that started using tools. Somehow, collectively, the human nature brought everybody into using tools. Hmm. And it, you know, like some cultures develop a little slower because of tradition or uh, religion and stuff like that. But as a whole, when when something starts developing, it develops across all of humans. Um, And you you could see that with the development of the war clubs because they weren't just happening in in the northern plains where the colonies were, or the the northern uh, mountains where the colonies were. They were also happening on the plains, and stuff like that so it's it's nuts they all had different slightly different shapes and you know they were uh had different adornment and stuff like that um but it's it's crazy to see that stuff and most of what i do is somewhat in that era but using techniques and styles from modern day yeah Um, and some of my favorite war clubs that I do, I do some of them with Damascus blades, but the ones I like doing are with, uh, the forge to finish blades where I'm forging into, um, uh, hollow, basically two hollows on the dagger blades. Okay. So they're, they're very pronounced, uh, center ridge lines with like hollow. It's, it's like a hollow grind, but they're forged in. Those are my favorite to make, and it, it, it's because it shows one, it shows more skill in the hand and hammer, and and two, aesthetically, I think they look better than the Damascus ones.
0: Hmm. They, they, I like. I mean, from a from a sculptural aspect, they're really interesting because they are. There's so much contrast between just the form of the form of the wood and the adornments, but then it kind of breaks off, and then there's this kind of you know sharp object kind of as the contrast there is there's like it's got two things going on at the same time which is kind of neat brings me to kind of modern day now you're going to be down at the blade show in texas yes are you testing for the abs journeyman smith
1: so they don't do that in texas uh the only two places right now that do it i think it's the arkansas show and blade show atlanta i own testing this year at Blade Show Atlanta.
0: You are testing at Blade Show Atlanta. Yes.
1: I have one of my journeyman knives forged out. It is a single lug integral guard. Vest Bowie out of 52-100. And it is kicking my butt.
0: All right. Well, listen. Don't... Listen. There's a couple things. Number one, I have a reputation to uphold. So, <laughs> so I don't mean to put more pressure on you, but like... I'm rooting for you. You're going to pass because mm-hmm. there's a reputation on this podcast. The people who come on the show before they before they go to test, they they get it. They win it. They they pass the test with flying colors. If you're not if you're not understanding what we're following, the American Bladesmith Society tests. To if you're a member in good standing and you make five knives and then you do these the bend test and you do the sharpness test and all these tests and then you 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 submit your knives at blade show and then you if you pass you get this designation um who took do you you uh you studied with uh jason knight right
1: well no uh i did my performance test with jason knight so how was that yes that man that uh that was a fun weekend but i ended up having covid that weekend oh no yeah and then jason and shelly got it from me oh no oh i felt terrible about it um and I'm, I'm not going to go They're, they're fine with it. it. It turned out to be a good thing. I'm not going to go into details because that's their, you know, privacy. I don't want to, sure. but, um, it actually worked out for them to get it. Uh, I, and I talked to them at blade show after, and they, you know, like I felt, like I said, I felt really, really bad. Um, cause you know, he, he offered up his place for me to come stay at while I, you know, did this for the weekend i went down there i took the test I, I made a really awesome knife it was thin like a chef knife um but sharp Perform it was 80 crv2 uh the edge was 60 rockwell the spine was like 58 after i blued it a couple times um it took me six minutes to chop through two two by fours because it was so thin and somehow I found a 2x4 that had like 35 growth rings on it. It was an old growth pine 2x4 that I did not realize Lowe's even sold. Um, but I, I like took forever to chop through that. The bend test was super scary. Um, if, you, if you've if you ever been to Knife 90 Degrees, man, it it does not want to be bent. But, it, I I mean, I passed it. It was a great weekend. I I learned a lot from Jason Knight just being there for the weekend. Um, he's a piece of work, isn't he? He's great, man. Like, he's so, – and he's so – he's so willing to give his knowledge out. And yeah. in, in, in a way, you know, like, yes, you know, some of the things that people ask him, it's like, dude, he gets paid for that. Like, maybe you should go watch his series because he already gives that information out. But, you know, like – the thing I notice about him is if you're willing to put in the work, he's willing to help you.
0: Yeah. and that's, He's a great guy. No, I, I've i talked to him a few times. Actually, one day, one day, I don't know, I think he got my number from, uh, from Schwarzer. Uh, one day I get this phone. All of a sudden, my phone rings, and, I don't, and I'm driving. I happen to be driving, and I pick up the phone, and, and I said, hello, and and there's just like this – it's almost like jack sparrow this kind of like crazy peter pan type on the other end not admitting who not saying who he was and it's just this weird guy this all of a sudden like who is this he's like who do you think it is and i'm like i think it's jason knight he's like yeah you're right we started talking for a bit he's such a he's a piece of work he really is a piece of work
1: yeah yeah he and that's that's a good description of of him as a person um he he's fun to be around, he's super knowledgeable, and he's he's so willing to help people in this craft. And that means a lot, especially as you know, there's a ton of Master Smiths out there who just like aren't like that.
0: But you know, you like, know what though? It's tough because you know, if you think about it, if you think about how much time it takes to get to the position that they are. And the fact that a lot of master bladesmiths didn't have the immediate information that they do now with with Instagram and social media and, and like creating these networks. And either you have the willingness or you don't have the willingness and putting all the hours in and then imagine all the phone calls you get or the messages you get. How'd you do that? How'd you do that? I mean, I'm not really, I mean, I haven't been making knives that long and I get like people just want to know how I did shit all the time. They want me to do video. People want me to make videos for them. Yeah. And so I, they, so I can, so, so they know, so they can make what I make. It's as frustrating.
1: It, it, Yeah, I definitely get that. And it's crazy when you make some like a name for yourself, like I'm, I'm not super huge as a knife maker. I, I've gained a, a small following and, and it happens to me too. And then there are some people who really overstep and they're just like, give me all the information you have. And, Usually those people, I'm like, you're going to have to get in the shop and make this stuff yourself and learn. I can't give you every single thing. Like, I d-
0: once got a guy slip into my DMs and say I owe it to the knife-making oh, community God. to do a video on something that I was talking about on Knife Talk. And you- I was like, owe it? You crazy? You owe me, motherfucker! I, I, you don't. How dare you slip into my DMs and ask me for ask me to do something like that? But you get people overreach all the time, and I would imagine that it gets very frustrating for a lot of people. You know,
1: yeah, especially when you're in because Jason Knight makes a, a living teaching people how to make knives. Right, like that is that is you know yes he makes knives and he makes money from those, but his income is based off of the the classes that he teaches um and and so for people to go out there and be like hey you know you should give me this information it's like no you can come pay for it you can you can come like everybody else who comes to these classes and you can learn um that that's i plan on doing classes too um i i want to do it right i want to make sure like nobody's going to sue me that's the my biggest worry um and it's just going to be like intro stuff. Like, uh, I think I can teach intro stuff pretty well, but it, it, there are so many people who just think that they deserve without working for it. And it's like, as a knife maker, there's no, there's no association that's going to teach you outright. You can't go to college for knife making. You can take classes. Uh, the center of metal arts even accepts a GI bill. So you can take classes with the GI Bill, which is crazy to me, but you can't like—that's the only place that you can learn that. You, you well, know, New England
0: School of Metalwork too takes the GI Bill.
1: Is it the New England School? I thought the, it was I Senator.
0: believe I believe it's the New England School of Metalwork takes then the it, GI Bill.
1: Then it, yeah, it's one of those. So. I'm going to take your word for it because I don't. I've never been to either one. I learned about it recently from somebody.
0: But Tom Moss, Tom Moss, yeah, he, he told me about it. Tom Moss, uh, great knife maker, great friend of the show. He just retired from the Coast Guard. Yeah, and he sent me a message saying that he uses GI Bill to take classes at the uh, New England School of Metalwork, which is outstanding. That's but they're huge. nonprofits, so I'd imagine yeah. that the Center for Metal Arts does the same thing. Yeah, so,
1: so that that's like. Though that's, but that's the only place, you know, that that's offered. Um, and so, you know, some of these people, or, you know, you can do what I did and watch every YouTube video you can get your hands on and learn the hard way and like get in the shop and actually make stuff like that's my biggest thing is why are you asking me these simple questions that
0: you can solve by getting out to your shop and doing it? It, But you know, there's, it's, it's a double-edged sword in, 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 society now because there's so much instant i mean information is so instant and there's so many resources that we have we don't understand that there's like a pe- a pecking order in regards to you know what comes quickly and what comes slowly you know it's it's funny because the older i get even like month to month i'm far more interested in it as not i don't need it as fast I don't yeah. need the information as fast. Like, it's a lot different than it used to be. But but I, I actually, my experience is so much different than everybody else's. And it's like, I, I take it for granted the fact that before, you know, Facebook, before Instagram, before social media, I was, a, I was a fabricator and a blacksmith at the Center for Mental Arts, and I didn't even realize it. Like, I never wanted to be a blacksmith. Like, I had an opportunity when I was... Uh, 27 to be a blacksmith and i was just like i don't know what the fuck i'm not i was already a welder but i was just like i don't know about from i don't know uh, what, about any about that and then i ended up getting a fabrication job at the center for mental arts before and i had no idea i thought I oh hammer well, hammers great awesome and then I, I i was really it was i lucked into it honestly and it was totally different from what people who want to become blacksmiths or want to become bladesmiths they they go out of their way. I was it was it's you know it's embarrassing how reluctant I was you know and yeah. it was all of a sudden I'm, I was getting paid to take classes which is crazy you know that my experience is so different than everybody else's in the sense that like I was so blase about the whole thing I would come home and I said to my, I said to my wife we have to change my, my W two because I think it, I think I have to I, when I claim our taxes I have to say I'm a blacksmith and she goes what 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 are you talking about like, <laughs> oh, i'm a fabricator or something she's like you're not a blacksmith you're fab. we'll put a fabricator down yeah but it was like it was uh you know it's eye-opening now how how people get information how people kind of like understand you know the the immediacy and the non-immediacy and what matters and what doesn't matter it's just like it can be a little bit like frustrating but also a little bit overwhelming
1: yeah it will it's also frustrating to find the right information because you can find a lot of really bad information on right. youtube there are, like i said you know there were some youtube people that i watched that they did more of the blacksmithing part of bladesmithing but they weren't good all around bladesmithing like they didn't understand the steel the way the way they should or the heat treating process they came at it from, like, a blacksmithing, like, oh, you heat the steel red hot and quench it in motor oil. It's like, no. Mm. The, the one, like, what steel are you using? W- why? What temperatures does that steel like? Like, you know, like, your margin of error is so high when you don't have all of the information.
0: I'm very critical on... on- a lot of I'm not crit, I'm not outwardly critical, but like I have a hard time watching anybody forge except for Alex Steele. Alex Steele is very when he, he does his videos where he's talking while he's forging, people don't give him enough credit yeah. because that is so hard for him to talk in an in out of rhythm of his hammering. His hammering is in within rhythm, and then he's talking out of rhythm and out of in, in without being out of breath. And people people don't give him the respect that, I mean I know that I know only because like I know how hard it is so he I think he's the one blacksmith I see on, on a lot of YouTube videos where I'm just like he doesn't get enough credit he doesn't yeah. get enough credit
1: yeah and I I think that comes with his age and also like how he got his start his experience like, yeah Being he, a,
0: you know working with Brian Brazil and having real experience
1: yeah by the time he got big on YouTube, he probably already had eight years of blacksmithing experience. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, like and that's more than I have as a bladesmith.
0: It's yeah. I I, I you know, well we don't want to talk about that. But I, I'm I'm a fan of I it's hard. It's hard because there's such a wealth of there are great, the Center for Metal Arts, the New England School of Metalwork and all the other schools and, and I, I love the fact that you see guys like uh, Jason Knight traveling to other schools and Steve mm-hmm. Schwarzer traveling to other schools and opportunities being available because it's like YouTube is so great for the beginning, but it's like, it's so hard to, it's so hard to get real true understanding from YouTube.
1: Yeah. And that's something like when I say I want to teach classes, like it's, there's, there's one master Smith I know of in Iowa. I think there's one in uh, Minnesota. And then as far as that, I don't know of many other ones that are close to me. Isaiah Schroeder does teach classes, and he's an hour and a half from me. Um, really? Yeah. So you're
0: an hour and a half from Madison?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, li- I live in Dubuque, Iowa, which is bordering Wisconsin and Illinois.
0: Right? I, uh, actually, my, my in-laws are in Madison. and When I, when I, fir- I first met Isaiah, geez, it's got to be like six years ago. I, I, my, I, dra- I dragged my father-in-law to his shop, and we had such a good time. He's, Isaiah's such a good guy. He and, is, and um, he's so knowledgeable. He's a great guy. He's a great, really great guy. I remember before he moved into his big shop, and we looked, and he was making Sia's for this uh, company, and it was so cool just seeing his shop and talking to another blacksmith and bladesmith, and we had such a good time. And he's he's really, he's a really, he's a really great guy. And I got to meet him at blade. Last time I was at the blade show. He. He was there with his wife, and yeah, and then you know Nate Zimmerman's in in Milwaukee. Milwaukee. Yeah. I didn't realize that you you were only an hour and a half from Madison.
1: Yeah, I actually get my my uh, back worked on my tattoo in in Madison. All right.
0: Madison's where it's where it's at. That's yeah. why. Might you might maybe maybe next time, I you know what? Nate gets so mad. Nate Zimmerman gets so mad at me because I kind of like. Anytime I go to Madison to visit the in laws, I just sneak in and sneak out because, you know, you can't. It's, I don't go anywhere. I mean, when I go visit my family, I can't just be like, all right, nice. How's everybody? I'm going to go to a hammer in.
1: Yeah. You know, I so can't do I, that. the last time you went, I thought about hitting you up and I was like, no, he's going there for family. Like, well, he's not going to have
0: time. I would have time if it wasn't for the fact that my family is like, my, it was just like, it would be really lame. <laughs> it would be really, it would be really, I, they wouldn't be they wouldn't be mad i mean they would be super i i need to like yeah i needed to separate it out maybe the next time i go out to wisconsin i'll I'll, uh we'll figure something out
1: yeah and isaiah has this has a really nice shop great shop great
0: shop yeah isaiah's a good dude um so what's next what's next for 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 james fleming so the big
1: thing is well I'm doing Texas the blade show down there and then journeyman is really my biggest focus right now um just because I'm trying to make five perfect knives and what I plan on doing is making ten and then picking the best five from that
0: it's a good that's a strong move it
1: is a strong move but that's also it's a lot um you know I'm also i th- I, I think I have close to 40 knives in process or finish for blade show texas and i plan on having about the same for atlanta to include yeah i had 43 knives at blade show or 43 pieces so i had you know the war clubs and stuff too but uh for blade show last year um and so i did okay i paid it, it paid for the trip and i came home with some money and texas like um i'm only an hour away from like my hometown is an hour away from the show in texas so that's like kind of going home to stomping grounds and yeah that might be nice and hopefully i can sell well there but i i don't think i'll sell out i didn't sell out at blade show but i did do well um and it's just if i have 40 pieces and end up if i plan on having 40 pieces and end up with only 30 that's still a lot you know,
0: you're, you're, they're gonna go. It's not like it's yeah. not like it's not like fish it doesn't go bad. You know, no,
1: exactly. Um, but yeah, I, getting journeyman like uh, it's been a journey. Um, you know, I, I tested with Jason last year. Uh, I was gonna try to test at Blade Show last year, but I missed the cutoff date by two months. Aye. Yeah. So the thing that ABS doesn't tell everybody is your sign up date. So if you're in the ABS, if you sign up after June, you have to wait another year to test. Even if you go to the, the Intro to Bladesmithing ABS class, you still have to wait another year. So if you're trying to knock off a year and you signed up after June, it's not going to happen. Because hmm. you have to wait until you pass your third year mark. They don't postdate you or anything like that. You You wait. So my date is August... 20 no august 16th is when i signed up so i had that was two almost it was about a month and a half after blade show uh so and i thought i had signed up before june but i I, you know talking to cindy uh with the abs she was like no your date's this date so you can't test this year so i'm testing this year um coming up so that'll be uh That'll be nice, uh, but and there's also a super high level group of us testing for journeyman this year. We Very got good. Will Stelter, Matt Stagmer, um, Dennis Tyrell. I think you've heard of him. Sure,
0: uh, I know all those Cur- guys.
1: Curtis Holland, Jeremy sure. Yelling. There's, it's an intimidating group, to be
0: honest. Like, yeah, but they don't, they don't. I, I know,
1: like, but I also I would like the Kiesler Award, and so you know what the Kiesler Award is, right? Sure. Yeah, so the best journeyman, the best journeyman knife presented gets awarded the Kiesler Award. Um, and so I have to make a knife that's better than Will Stelter, Kurt Holland, Jeremy Yelling and all these guys and and so it's just like i i really got to bring out all the stops that's what i'm doing i'm doing three integrals so an integral chef an integral guard vest bowie and then an integral guard hunter and then uh i'll do a plate bowie and then probably a a contoured guard bowie
0: very exciting
1: yeah it's so like that's that's my plan, but I also know Will is planning on doing a couple integrals as well.
0: All right, James Fleming, guy, I'm, I'm 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 I am pulling for you. I'm pulling for you. Definitely, you, you're now you're on the hook. You're on the you're on the hook. <laughs> you got to get the journeyman's because I mean like now I mean now it's you're you're representing me. Yeah, I, I'm fickle. You know, I'm a, <laughs> I'm just kidding, obviously. I, one thing I want to tell you is, you know, I've recently been having a lot of veterans on the show, and it's it's always it's always an honor to talk to to people in regards to their service. And you know, there's a lot of things that people say. It's very, you know, can thank you for your service, but I appreciate I appreciate your sacrifice and the sacrifice of your time, your energy, your mental health, your physical health. It's it's beyond noble and I can't help but be grateful to you for making the sacrifice to your life that you did for this country and it means so much to so many people and there's so many veterans who listen to the show who are new who appreciate your service but also appreciate the fact that you've kind of transitioned and found something that you love and that you're you know you're being you know you're it's your great representation of veterans in this country
1: I really appreciate that. I think most people are just like, thank you for your service. And that's, it's, it's so hard to respond to that. Right. But like when, when you articulate, you know, like obviously they're trying to be nice and, and you know, and it, I appreciate it. But a lot of times it's like, why are you thanking me? You know, like most people who go into the military do it for, you know, their own reasons. Everybody's got their own reason for going. um, And, you know, it can be a combination of things, but I do really appreciate you saying that.
0: Well, it's you know, you you just hear the trauma that people go through, and, and just talking to Joe and and Stephanie, the last two people who were on the show were veterans, and you know, it it affected them, and and I appreciate the fact that you put yourself in a in a you know, you took your you took some of your freedom and your sa you sacrifice your physical well being for this country, and it it really is. It's a story that's very important to hear, and, and I'm very appreciative of that. Yeah, thank you. Wasteland Forge, ladies and gentlemen. James Fleming, if you go to Instagram, it's wasteland underscore forge, and you can go to wastelandforge.com. Follow what he's doing. He actually has a great YouTube channel uh, where you can f- kind of follow what he's up to. He does a lot of uh, content. He's making videos and stuff like that, and he's just like, you know, he's. this is another great example of a person trying to make something with their lives and then creating something that's that's beautiful and i'm very appreciative of of you and, and your support so guys go follow go follow james fleming like i said wastelandforge.com wasteland underscore forge and we'll see you next week thanks again james thank you the full blast podcast is proudly sponsored by axe wax an all-natural food safe wax for coating your handles It can be used on your axes, your knives, or even on your boots, with the full confidence that Axe Wax is safe and durable. Furthermore, if you use the promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get a special 10% discount on your order. So go to axewax.us and get yourself some of the most luxurious wax for waxing your axe.